0: We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was Senior Minister. Well, it was Christmas time a few years ago, plane was filling with travellers, eager to get home for the holidays, and the airline steward was a particularly extroverted character. He had been a professional musician before finding that you need to get paid in life and so becoming an airline steward, but he enjoyed his music. He played many instruments but the one he found most easy to carry with him in his travels around the world was the flute. And as people came on the board, his plane, he always played the flutes, playing tunes, playing national songs for different people as they came on and so on. But being Christmas time, he played Christmas carols. But the company told him not to do it anymore. It was company policy. He mustn't upset people and playing Christian songs would upset different people. And so he was banned from being able to play his flute or limited to those politically correct songs, nothing religious. Uh, Christmas is a joyful celebration of the birth of God's Son, the Saviour of the world. December 25th or on the new Nomenclature of Life, D25, is the season of joyful celebration. Not just because it's about the birth of a baby that is reason for a celebration always not just because it's the birth of a special baby the Messiah, the King, the Son of God I mean that is a reason for celebration but because when God visited the world he didn't come to judge he didn't come to condemn he didn't come to give us what we deserved but he came to save look into John's Gospel for a moment where we were reading earlier on for example, in chapter 1, as Adam read for us, John 1.12, Yet all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Notice that verse 14, When the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, we'd seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well come over a page to chapter 3 verse 16 that very famous verse for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and look at verse 17 because for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. We have every right to be condemned. But that was not the purpose of the coming of the Son of God. It was to save. Indeed, the Apostle Paul said that here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And so, Christians, around the world and down all the centuries, we sing in joy and gratitude. We sing and make music and celebrate at Christmas time in particular. We celebrate his coming. But this year in the season of happiness, the season of holidays, the season of Christmas and summer and New Year there is another date that is really on our mind and it's S11. For September the 11th gave such a discordant note to this year. For as we think past in this year what will we remember about 2001? We won't remember December the 25th, we'll remember that we had one and some of us will remember there were bushfires but no, 2001, the day that everyone will remember of 2001 is going to be the 11th of September. For that day rattled and shook our confidence that all was well with the world and sent a warning message around the free world that warfare has not come to an end. The Communists may have gone. But there are still enemies of the Western world, real, violent, life-threatening enemies. And so that day started another major international war, fought so far in Afghanistan but with worldwide ramifications for it was the war against terrorism, or so the American President called it. It shook the world because it was not just the military personnel but civilians going about their lawful uh, business in those two towers. It shook the world because it was not some government or nation but a terrorist group with powers that previously only nations seemed to have. It shook the world because it happened not in some obscure country that we have no access to but in the most powerful nation and city in the world. It shook the world because it wasn't hidden away in a jungle or a desert but happened in our lounge rooms on our television sets. But it shook the western liberal secular world most of all. Because suddenly there appeared to be a people who felt that their cause was So right, so just, they felt it so acutely and strongly that they would suicide for the sake of their cause, they would murder for the sake of their cause. And multicultural relativism went down with the towers. They were not going to have all viewpoints are equally right imposed upon them. Indeed. How can you continue to say all views are equally right when one view is that it is right to suicide in the murder of a several thousand other people? Evil suddenly became an absolute again. The economic secularism or materialism is not the basis of everybody's life after all. And these people were not going to accept the victory of atheism like the rest of the world, seems to have accepted it. Generally, Western atheistic liberalism lives at close quarters with Protestantism. It's in the traditional Protestant countries, the United States of America, Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand. It's in those countries that we see Western democracy and freedom and we see secularism at at large. And so atheistic materialism has come to terms with Protestant Christianity, which argues its case on reason and persuasion. Slowly, it has spread this secularism across the traditionally Roman Catholic countries so that most of what could be called Christian nations are the free liberal Western democracies of today. However... In the world economy there are other philosophies and religions to deal with and some of these are not committed to peaceful persuasion. Some of these are not open to discussion and reasoning. Some of these do not have a separation between state and church but the religion of the state is to be the religion of all people within it and nobody really is free to practise any other religion. Some of these do not have individual rights and obligations. Some don't even seem to have compassion or concern for others in this world as they readily accept starvation and slavery, as they seem unconcerned with children's health or even the humanity of women as they so freely abort female female babies. And so America and liberal America and Western liberal America is having to come to terms with it. Uh, Let me show you an article I read, a letter, no, an article I read in Sydney Morning Herald. Just the other day, um, the 28th. It was a humorous article with a very serious point. Let me try and balance everything in life here. No, we can do it. To stay free we must fly by the seat of our pants. The US uh, struggles to maintain freedom in a world of different values, Thomas Friedman writes. In the wake of the attempted bombing of the American airline flight from Paris by a terrorist nut with explosives in his shoe, I'm thinking of starting my own airline which would be called Naked Air. Its motto would be everybody plays naked and nobody worries or naked air where the only thing you wear is a seatbelt. But later in the article the serious problem of which I am speaking is there. This is America's core problem today. A free society is based on openness and on certain shared ethics and honour codes to maintain order. And we are now intimately connected to too many societies that do not have governments that can maintain order and to people to have no respect for our ethics or our honour codes. What are these ethics? What are these honour codes? Yes, you can have a society where everybody is free to do as everybody wishes, provided there is a certain basic level of agreement. But if there is no basic level of agreement, if everybody is absolutely free to do absolutely what they want to do, there is no society that will be able to survive. Mr. Friedman is right. Liberal relativistic atheism has come to a fundamental crossroads, a fundamental problem. They have forgotten the basis of the American in the American society. Listen, for example, to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Here is the agreed shared ethics and honour code of America. This is their birthday statement. This was the declaration on the 4th of July 1776. This is where it all comes from. But of course Liberal America doesn't like the word created and Liberal America hates the creator spelt with a C, capital C. They want to be able to have all the privileges that come from this shared honour code without actually believing in the code. Now, the particular cause of the problem of S11 disaster was conflict with Islam. Thanks for it is hoped by liberalism that it is a conflict with terrorism, that it is a conflict with fundamentalism, that it's a conflict with religious fanaticism, the nut with a bomb in his boot. So in a special edition of that popular TV show which is always shown too late in Sydney television called West Wing, they gave out the official government position. It was a propaganda piece put on by them. And in this uh, official government position that was put out a week or two after September the 11th, we were told that the Taliban is to Islam what the Ku Klux Klan is to Christianity. No one, no one thinks the KKK, KKK is anything to do really with Christianity. I mean it is a total perversion of Christianity. Well, so the Taliban is not really Islamic. It's a total perversion of Islam. That is the hope. The hope of liberal America that the conflict is not with Islam, but just with the extreme terrorist nutters. Unfortunately it comes from a confound, profound ignorance of Islam, really. The conflict is with Islam not with extremism. I mean, to say what we have said for the last few months is good. It's good politically, strategically and it's good militaristically. It's good because it divides the Islamic world so that we only actually have to deal with one end of it and not have everybody rising up into what would be indeed the Third World war. It's good because it marginalises a group of people, it labels them and it demonises them. And it's always easy to deal with a group of people if you can demonise them out on the extreme labelled ends. That's a a good way of dealing. It's politically wise, it's strategically clever. It's the way to do it if you want to win the war and win the war is what they want to do. But it is a pathetic dream that doesn't understand the depth of disagreement between peoples or between religions. and While it might have short term and has advantage and gain, it is not going to solve the problem. The problem will continue. Because Western democracy either can tighten its reins and refuse to have people who are Muslims and Buddhists within it or Western democracy is going to have to speak the truth clearly and unambiguously and stop the censorship of religion. For my friend who just wanted to play Christmas carols, at Christmas time on an aeroplane is being censored by the land of the free, the land of free speech, censors severely Anybody who wants to enter into open, respectful discussion of differing viewpoints, anybody who wants to say that one religion is wrong or another one is right, is today the enemy of the free society. That is the option that liberal relativism has come to. Mr Menzies was the Prime Minister of Australia for many years and during the Menzies time there was an attempt to ban communism from Australia. Referendum was held on the subject and the Australian people decided not to ban communism. Even though communism is antithetical to democracy. Even though we stood the risk of communists taking over our country and changing the constitution away from democracy. We believed in the open, free expression of ideas whereby people can talk and share ideas and for the next 20, 30 years we were taught publicly, in, privately, in communication against communism. We were shown the errors of communism. Many people were persuaded to communism and to Marxism. Many people persuaded against it. But in the long run, Western democracies dealt with it within itself, not by the terrible McCarthy process, but by open discussion. That is the way we must deal with Islam too, friends, for Islam is also antithetical to democracy and to freedoms and rights as Westerners understand it. We can exclude Muslims from the Western world by some form of censorship or we can discuss the issue openly, freely, frankly. But to refuse to exclude them and to censor all discussion about them and to put everyone who believes something seriously into the lunatic fundamentalist fanatic bin is a recipe for long term disaster in our community. So let me take a few moments to show you the problem with Islam and its incompatibility with Christianity and therefore its complete incompatibility with relativism. The starting point is that Islam agrees with much of Christianity. It teaches the creation of the world. It teaches that there is only one God. It teaches that Jesus together with Abraham, Moses and lots of others was a prophet. It teaches that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. It teaches that Abraham was the father of the Jews through Isaac and the Arabs through Ishmael just as we read in our first lesson tonight. It teaches justice, both punishment and reward is to be held in a moral universe. It teaches life after death and that justice will prevail. Dealing with Islam is not dealing with Hinduism or Buddhism where the logic structure is completely different where the history is completely unconnected. No, Islam is very much like Christianity and like Judaism. We share much in common. Furthermore, like Christianity, Islam is a very diverse and complex religion. There are many kinds of Muslims in the world, holding many different kinds of views, practising Islam in all kinds of different ways. Possibly the majority of Muslims are nominal, just like the majority of Christians are nominal. Uh, They are people who really are interested in their family, their home, their job, their food, their sport and happen to be Muslims. And so generalisations and misunderstandings about Islam are like generalisations and misunderstandings about Christianity, all too frequent and all too common. However, Islam denies the possibility that all religions are the same or even that all religions are compatible with each other or that we can ignore the religious elements and live at peace. For Islam denies such basic claims of Christianity that it is impossible for Christianity and Islam both to be right. That in the, the view that all religions are the same is undoubtedly wrong when you put Islam and Christianity into the same box. They are not all the same, they have not got all the same goals, aspirations, hopes, Christianity and Islam are diametrically opposed to each other. They are mutually exclusive, completely contradictory. Let me illustrate. Islam denies that Jesus died. Christianity not only affirms that Jesus Christ died but claims that he died for our sins and that the death of Jesus is central to our message. So it's not that Islam and Christianity disagree with something on the periphery of their religion, at the very heart of Christianity is the death of Jesus. But Islam denies that Jesus died at all, the man never Died, He was raptured up to heaven and was not crucified and was not killed and has never died according to Islam. It is hard to hold these two things together in your head. Jesus died and Jesus didn't die. I take it that is a formal mutual contradiction. He either did or he didn't. But he can't have done both. It is not possible. Let me show you the evidence. Here is part, part of the Quran, 04157 if you want to look it up, that they said in boast, We killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow for a surety. They killed him not. Slightly strange words when you first hear them but no doubt as to what they mean. Hard to be more explicit. The commentary on my copy of the Quran down the bottom makes it perfectly clear that that what it says is what it says. Jesus was not killed, was not crucified, only appeared to be so but in fact wasn't. Somebody else died in his place. Sometimes it is suggested that Judas Iscariot was the one who died in his place. There is different interpretations of how it was that he appeared not to die but there is no doubt that the Quran, which is the basic doctrine, the basic book and revelation of Islam is absolutely explicit that Jesus did not die. I shouldn't have to rehearse for you here tonight the biblical material about the death of Jesus. It is predicted in the Old Testament. He repeatedly predicted it himself in the Gospels. The Muslims are great at believing that Jesus was a prophet, but they rarely pay attention to the prophecies of Jesus because the prophecies of Jesus are all about his death. It is described in detail in each of the Gospels. About a third of the Gospel is about, at each occasion, is about the death of Jesus. It is referred to frequently in the rest of the New Testament. The basis of the arguments of the rest of the New Testament is the death of Jesus, such that if you ever tried to take a New Testament letter and edit out all references to the death of Jesus, it would be impossible. The arguments would fall apart. It is because of Jesus' death that we live the way that we live, that we are forgiven, that we relate to God, that we relate to each other. Everything hangs in the New Testament on the death of Jesus. You can't have the New Testament without the death of Jesus, double negative, it's just impossible. Because the death of Jesus is referred to by non-Christian writers of the time. The great Roman historian Tacitus uh, wrote of the death of Jesus. Nero, he says, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures of a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for a moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even here in Rome. There is a non-Christian writing in the first century of the death of Jesus and not only a non-Christian pagan such as Tacitus but Josephus the Jewish historian who wrote in the second half of the first century. He also speaks of Jesus as the one who was condemned and put to death on the cross in his Antiquities chapter 18, book 18. Now the secularist atheists want all religions to be the same really. Or at least not to be any difference to disagree. We're going to just get on with life without any conflict, disagreement of a religious nature. How do we do that when it is so blatantly clear that the religions are in complete opposition to each other? Well, by making religion a matter of no great importance. It's insignificant. Religion goes into the opinion box, the value box, not the facts. There are facts to life and there are opinions about life and religion is in the opinions about life box. It's the untestable, unprovable theories about life that you do not have to worry about. It's the leap of stupidity called faith when you haven't had any evidence your way or when all the evidence is contrary. Of course, that is not how Christians use the word faith, but it's how non-Christians use the word faith. But Christianity and Islam are not about opinions at this point, they are about a fact. The fact that Jesus did or did not die. He cannot have died for some and not for others in the sense that he isn't really dead. He either did die or he didn't die if Islam is right then Jesus didn't die and therefore Christianity is completely wrong if Christianity is right Jesus did die and if that is the case the Quran and therefore Islam is completely wrong possibly both Christianity and Islam are wrong possibly Jesus didn't live at all that's an option too but the one option that is not available is that Islam and Christianity are both right. That is not an option that is available. But here's the problem with the secularist mindset. For they don't want to say anybody's wrong. Everybody's right. You've got your truth, I've got my truth, the Muslim's got his truth, everybody's got their own truth, and every The coming down of the towers in New York brought back the reality that there is evil and it's not just a matter of opinion. And all religion and all ethics is not just a matter of opinion. There are rights and there are wrongs and here is the problem with the secularist mindset. They don't want to have to do the hard work of deciding on the evidence. It's much easier to sit back and say, well, everybody's entitled to their opinion than to look up the evidence and say, yes, they're entitled to their opinion and, by the way, their opinion is wrong. That takes an intellectual courage and humility in the face of facts. The secularist mindset talks in the terms of the moral superiority of intellectual honesty as opposed to faith but they are lazy intellectual cowards who will not decide by the evidence for or against Islam's view of Christ. It's Not that the evidence is all that hard to find it's fairly clear on this issue. Islam, in denying Jesus' death therefore denies his death for sin, of course. His death shows that he was more than a prophet. He wasn't just another prophet come into the world with a little bit more revelation from God or another calling back to the people who had slipped away yet again. He came to deal with sin in a way that no prophet had ever dealt with sin. For he came to pay the price for sin to bring us back to God. And so Islam in denying Jesus' death also denies that Jesus was more than a prophet. He was the son of God. For it's all of one piece the death of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. Come with me to this last reading in tonight, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And look again at those opening four verses. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. That's true. The Muslim would read that and say that's true. God spoke to our forefathers, by this prophet, by that prophet, at this time, in that way, in this fashion, bit by bit, piece by piece, the prophets received the information from God and passed it on to us. In the past that's what happened. But notice how verse 2 is put in opposition to that. Something different has now happened. It's not just a continuation and now we've had another prophet come, but... In these last days, these are not just the days like every other day, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And notice what the New Testament says of this Son, whom God appointed as heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. This is no normal man. There may be a man who will be appointed the heir of all things, but there is no man who made the universe. This is the Son of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. You know, like the heater, the heat of the heater, the light of the light. You look at a light and what do you see? You can only see the light, which is the light that you're looking at. You look at Jesus, you see God. He is the light, he is the radiance, he is the, the effulgence, is a lovely old word of it, of God himself. He is the exact representation of his very being. Sustaining all things by… This is no great prophet, this is no greater than average prophet. This is the Son of God we are speaking of. And after he had provided purifications for sins by the sacrifice of himself on the cross, after he made purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and became superior to the angels. The name he had inherited is superior to that. This passage leaves no place for the future role of a Muhammad six hundred and twenty or six hundred years later, or I may say, in case you know the Mormons, of Joseph Smith nineteen hundred years later. The revelation of God is complete in the Son of God, who made purifications for our sins, for we are not but hearing. A little snippet of information from yet another prophet, we are seeing the very God Himself become man. And when He comes, He doesn't just give us information, He removes the barrier that is between God and man, namely our sinfulness and God's anger with us. See, let me show it to you in a small theological argument with Islam. For in Islam we are taught that Allah is all just and we are taught that he is all merciful. But how can he be all just and all merciful at the same time? How can he be all just and let sinners go? If you let a sinner go, if you let a criminal go then where is your justice? And yet, how can he be all merciful if he punishes every sinner to the full? So if he punishes sinners he's not merciful and if he lets them go he's not just. Here is the conundrum for Islam that is usually resolved by the Muslim acknowledging his ignorance and declaring the inscrutable mystery of God. That God will do it somehow but we do not but we know how. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who is justice himself and who is mercy himself. We know how he has been able to uphold justice and extend mercy at the same time. He has done this by the death of his son on the cross for us. For in his death sin is paid for fully and justice is upheld and in his death mercy is extended to all who believe and put their trust in that sacrifice the mercy of God and the justice of God is seen in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reason for the joy at Christmas time. For we're celebrating the birth of a man who was God become flesh. More than a prophet, the very Son of God himself who became man not just to be man but to make purification for sin, to taste death for everyone so that he might bring many sons to glory, the writer of Hebrews says later. The one whom Hebrews says, God appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We celebrate the birth of that one who came as the only one who could come and pay the penalty for sins. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, which we deserved. He came into the world to save the world, which we do not deserve, but he has done for us. And this man came to wage war, not with governments, and not with nations and not with swords or guns or or airplanes he came to wage war by his death by paying the penalty himself for us when muhammad finally came back into mecca having left to go and live in Medina. He came back at the head of an army. He came back to take control of the government. He came back having won warfare, having been victorious in battle with swords and with spears and with arrows and with horses and with camels and with armies and with forts. He enters into Mecca as the conquering general. But the Lord Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on the donkey in order to be crucified. Whose disciple took up a sword and lopped off an ear and he said, put away the sword. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Who said to the Roman governor, My kingdom is not of this world, if it was, my disciples would have fought. Our secularist, materialist, atheistic fellow citizens have not understood how different it is to live with Christians than to live with Muslims. And they want to put us into the same box and think all religions the problem because they don't want to think at all. This man came to wage war by dying our death and establishing a spiritual kingdom for all people for all time that you and I may be forgiven and made children of God, brought into the family of God If you believe that, well of course you'll want to sing carols at Christmas time and you'll want to sing them to everybody and to anybody. And if you're an airline steward you'll play your guitar and you'll play your flute and if you haven't got either you'll sing over the amplifier. For what greater, better news can anybody have going home to their families, to hear that there is the family of God that they're welcome home to, because what we're celebrating this time is the real family. What we're celebrating is the birth of the real baby. What we're celebrating is worth celebrating. And you will not be censored, for you will not allow people to censor you. You would rather die than be censored with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the weapons with which we are not the weapons of this world, guns rifles, bows and arrows and planes and bombs. The weapons we fight with are prayer and holiness of life and the word of the gospel, the sword of the spirit as it is called in our spiritual warfare. Open discussion, free inquiry, speaking the truth, in love declaring some to be wrong for their sake that they might find something better. Oh, censorship is not our way friends. We are the people of plain speech. That is where we are and that is why democracy and freedoms have come out of Bible believing Christian societies. That is what we must stand for now and fight for, not with weapons other than the supernatural ones of the Word of God. Do you want to ask questions, make comments? What does Islam stand to lose if Jesus actually was crucified? It stands to lose the Quran. For if Jesus was crucified, then the Quran is absolutely wrong. And if the Quran is wrong, then the Quran is the only miracle of Muhammad. And so Muhammad is a false prophet. If Muhammad is a false, there is no Islam. So the actual physical death of Jesus, leaving aside why he died, the actual physical death of Jesus is the disproving of Islam. Just like the resurrection of Jesus is the disproving of Christianity. For if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is wrong. Indeed, if Jesus didn't die, Christianity is wrong. What is the Muslims' view of Christians? They have great respect for the people of the book, as they call it, us and Jews. Muhammad noticed the terrible paganism of polytheistic idolatry and the clear moral superiority of Christians and Jews. And the thing that he noticed about Christians and Jews, unlike the polytheistic idolaters of his own Saudi Arabia was that we had a book and so he saw the revelation and the owning of a book was the way to free people from the superstition and immorality and decadence of idolatry. And so he has high regard and puts us in a different category to polytheistic idolaters. However We are said to have perverted our book by most Muslims, twisted it and changed it so that it is no longer truly saying what was said and therefore are in error, especially with Christians the error of worshipping Jesus as God or seeing that he died as a sacrifice for our sins. What are the pieces of evidence that Muslims claim that Jesus didn't die? Um, first and foremost from their point of view, the Quran. For well, if the Quran says it, it's true. Therefore it needs no other further evidence. The fact that the Quran was written six centuries later doesn't persuade most historians that it is likely to be historically accurate. But of course from the Islamic point of view, it's a divine word, not a human word. Whereas the Bible is human eyewitnesses, the Quran is direct statement of God without any human intervention. So it's the Quran. In my footnote, in the footnotes on my copy of the Quran, the author then uh, argues from the Ebionites, who were early Docetic Christians, who didn't believe that Jesus actually lived physically. For in the early uh, centuries of Christianity, there was a great struggle in the mindset of Christians as to who Jesus was. Was he man? Was he God? Was he part man, part God, fully God, fully man? And one of the great heresies, the Ebionites, was that he wasn't actually human at all. He was, a, he was God who just appeared to be human for a while and then ceased to be. It was. A view that was completely refuted from every apostolic writing we have, and so, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, we're taught if Jesus Christ, if you, it is the spirit of Antichrist to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So they they turn to that. That's the only evidence that I've ever seen a Muslim use. What do the Muslims say of the rest of Jesus' life if he did not die? They say that Jesus was one of the great prophets of Israel that God sent to his people to call them back from idolatry and to live a moral life in submission to God but that subsequent generations misunderstood his message and turned him into God but that he taught Islam is what they would say, and yeah. it's a bit louder, brother. I can't hear a little anywhere else. Hmm. Uh, the question is uh, uh, just questioning the statement I made that Islam does not uh, function well with democracy. Yes, Democracy has come out of a separation of church and state in part. Um, it has also come out of a belief in the, individu- the conscience of the individual in part. And so instead of being ruled by tribalism and by a religion, uh, the citizens concerning the affairs of this world are given freedom of choice of who they want to govern them. That has been a long, painful process to come to that uh, view. Jesus said, give to Caesar those that have Caesar's, give to God the things that have God. Jesus helps us see that difference. There is no such difference within Islam. Sorry, I should say. Even within uh, democracy, There still has to be a basic agreement of the peoples and that is what the Declaration of Independence shows. There is a basic agreement that God has created or the Creator has created all people equal. That is a basic assumption of democracy that can't be derived from democracy itself. It is derived from outside of democracy and that is why we are in conflict as Christians in our democratic cultures over issues like euthanasia and abortion. Because these are the issues that step beyond what the majority want down to the fundamental issues of what is life and what is right, what is wrong, what has anybody got the right to do or not to do to anybody else. However within that range of Christian understanding there is a whole range of freedom to make independent choices. Not so within Islam where there is no separation of church and state like that. And indeed, Islamic law will be brought into effect uh, whenever Islam is in control of any society. Now, the Muslims have two models to think by: Medina and Mecca. Muhammad grew up in Mecca, first came to his understanding of monotheism in Mecca, had his first reception of uh, of the Quran the early parts of the Quran in the Mecca and was persecuted in Mecca and taught his disciples how to live at peace with people even though they were being persecuted. He then moved to Medina because of persecution and in Medina came into control and he then taught his disciples how to control a society by the Sharia law and by oppression and warfare and jihad. He then came back to Mecca to take control of Mecca. Half of the Quran is written in Mecca and it is how to get on in a world where you're in a minority and half of it's written in Medina and it is how to rule when you are in control. That is why you can keep getting two different messages out of the Quran, One which sounds very peaceful and life-giving and that is why a Muslim living in Australia will abide by the laws of Australia because he'll read the Mecca parts of the Quran and quite happily fit in with the society here. And that is why once he moves into the majority in the society he will f- get rid of all that tolerance and freedom that he used when he was in the Mecca society and in a Medina frame of mind will impose the whole of Sharia law upon the society. Now you, you see that in... Uh, in the Sudan where the warfare has been for the last 30 years between the Muslim North and the Christian South. You see it in Nigeria where the line of demarcation between the northern states of Nigeria which are now under Sharia law and the southern states of Nigeria which are not. You see it in the oppression of, uh, uh, of our Malaysian friends where uh, the UNO party, UNO party is clearly a, a Muslim society. Uh, Pauline Hanson's statements are nothing compared to the Malaysian uh, Umno party statements in terms of racial prejudice, in terms of oppression of the rights of people. Pauline Hanson is, is, is a left pinky compared to what the Malaysian government and Mr Mahatma is, is about. Uh, you see it in uh, countries where there is Muslim control. See, in Saudi Arabia, we are not allowed to meet like this. In Saudi Arabia, I could not say the things that I have said tonight. This has not in any sense been an attempt at vilification of Islam or anything like that. I'm sorry if it is interpreted that way but it's not in my heart in the slightest. But you can't say that. You can't actually have Bible studies. You can't publish. You can't preach. You can't teach in those countries. The idea of the freedom of discourse and discussion and opinion is not available in those countries. And it's not just the Taliban in Afghanistan. We now have changed governments in Afghanistan but you'll notice that the new government in Afghanistan is going to continue with the Sharia law and they are still going to chop off hands of thieves because the Sharia law does not believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is not the basis of the justice of the Sharia law. For how much would you have to steal to make it worthwhile losing a hand? What would you give in return for a hand? A hand is almost infinitely worth anything more than you could ever steal isn't it? And yet you will lose a hand in Afghanistan not under the Taliban but under the new Muslim regime there because it is part of Islamic justice. And so yes, it is not a system that is consistent with democracy unless it is a minority group like our group of Muslims in Australia today who will. Follow the Mecca teachings of the Quran as long as they are in the minority. Now, I'm not expecting them to become the majority overnight. I understand there's only 200,000 in Australia out of 19 million. So I'm not living in fear that suddenly Australia is going to become a Muslim country tomorrow. I'll be long dead before they outpopulate the Christians. That's all right. I'm not really sure what I'm answering. You know. Yeah, it is a good question and and, and I'm not really good on the answer on this. That is, the question is about Islam believes in paradise in the next world but yet they seem to be concerned about Islam in this world now, conquering this world now. Have they got a different view to us? Well, they don't have a very different view to Christendom, the view before the Reformation. That we brought the kingdom of God in terms of the church into control society in the world. That was a dreadful mistake of Christianity. But that wouldn't be a mistake in Islam. And so, that submission to God, which will typify paradise, it is the responsibility of Islam to bring into this world in the now. And it is the responsibility of every government to bring it into effect once the government has control or the Muslims have control of a government. So you bring it in by governmental constraint not just by persuasion once you have the opportunity. If you don't have the opportunity as a government to do it then you only do it by persuasion. However Protestant Christians believe it can only be by persuasion, the persuasion of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. So even though we may have a vast majority control of a government, like, I think we could exercise in the United States of America because there are some 50, 60 million Protestant Christians who go to church every Sunday. That's a huge voting block. And even though we might have the power to bring it in, what is it that the government and the Constitution of America has set up? Freedom of religion. A freedom of religion that you don't get in any Muslim country that is controlled by Muslims. But if we suddenly the the revival took place tomorrow and all of australia was converted i would not want us to change the constitution away from freedom of religion when you make the government an instrument of religion you just, you pervert and corrupt both the government and the religion in christianity well we're going to sing and pray and do some other things aren't we so i'm going to pray i'll pray then we're going to sing I thought for a minute you say, I'll sing and you pray. No, no. Good. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the death of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and we thank you that you sent him into this world, your son, to become man, that we can see in him your grace and truth, that we can find your justice and your mercy through his death on our behalf. And that he rose victorious having made purification for sins and sits with you in the right hand of all power and authority and has sent out your word into this world to persuade and convince by the power of your spirit at work in our hearts and minds. So, Father we pray that you would give us joy at this Christmas time as we remember the birth of this one for us. We pray Father for our troubled world that you would give us the boldness to speak to them of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection even in those countries which do not want to hear especially amongst those people who have no opportunity because of government censorship and restriction and control we pray Father that you would not let the local communities out of their of the warfare that might come, to restrict Christian freedoms in the democratic societies, to restrict us from singing your praises or speaking your word of grace of arguing the case for Christ. I do pray Father for the Christians who struggle under terrible oppression, for those young children caught up in the slave trade of the Sudan and North Africa into Arabia, for the terrible oppression of Christians in so many Muslim countries, for the difficulties even in a Western Muslim country like Turkey. We do beg Father for your mercy, for your strength and our brothers and sisters that under the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ they would take their stand and share with him in the sufferings as they await the resurrection. Give them boldness in their faithfulness to the message of the gospel. And we do pray, Father, for our political leaders, not only here in Australia but overseas, that they would make wise decisions and seek for ways that will build for peace, not restricting truth and freedom, but by open discussion, bringing error to light, and calling upon people to live by the truth. So we pray, Father, for your help at this Christmas time, for help for your people and for your world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.